Good morning, church. Hey, uh, how many of y'all are thankful for air conditioning this morning? Yes, I like, I might actually love air conditioning. Uh, it feels great. Hey, I, my name is Pastor Chad. I'm one of the pastors here of discipleship, not the usual preaching pastor. So if you're new with us, just wanted to introduce you a little bit to our church and to us. Uh, we're a church that wants to be simply about Jesus. And you're going to hear a little bit of that even in this message today. But ultimately, our heart is to help you meet him, know him, and follow him. Because we really believe a relationship with him uh, transforms everything in your life. So we're starting a new series today. If you're new with us, it's a great time for you to be here. It's a series titled The Way of Love. And we're going to be looking at what the scriptures have to say about love. Uh, all kinds of people have opinions about love, and, and no Christian would ever doubt the importance of love uh, in our lives. In fact, uh, even non-Christian people in the non-Christian world holds love in incredibly high regard. I mean, more musicians, secular musicians have made more money off of the concept of love, have had more number one hits off the concept of love, and maybe no other concept has been missing in a lot of their marital relationships than the concept of love. It doesn't matter where you come from or what your background, uh, love is an incredibly important concept, but a very elusive one. In fact, you might say that we're addicted to love. But, but the truth is, we need a higher love. No, we need a, a deeper love. I mean, we need the power of love in our lives. We need a love that will always be present all the time. I don't know where these effects are coming from, Reese. I don't think we need all the effects. I just think it should be all about love. All you need is love. All you need is I mean, church, if we're honest with ourselves, we all want to be caught up in, in a great love story. That's for you guys right over here. Come on. My daughter's had to tell me about that one. You see, everyone has an opinion or a song about love. Unfortunately, great songs and lofty opinions about love do not make a person a loving person. We need to understand truly what love is and where love comes from. As Christians, we have a clear definition. We have a transformational example of it. And yet, unfortunately, as Christians, we are often characterized and honestly guilty of being some of the most unloving people in our world. So how do we change that? If we are to be characterized first and foremost by love, what does it look like to love? Who defines what is loving and what is not loving? And what should love do in our lives when we've been changed by it? So we're going to dive into two passages as we look at it, passages that we'll look at in more detail as the series goes on. But today I want to give an overview of love, kind of a big picture of love. We want to answer a couple questions. First of all, what is love not? What is not love that sometimes we mistake as love? What is love, or what does love actually look like? And then finally, 
what should love do when I've experienced it in my life? What is love not? What is love? And what should love do in my life when I've experienced it? So you have a Bible with you. Open it up to 1 Corinthians 13, one of the most famous passages about love uh, in a book written to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 13. It'll pop up here on the screen too if you're still getting comfortable or familiar with your Bible and where this passage is. But this is one of those passages that's often read at weddings frequently, uh, and we're going to look at it as a defining picture of love. First, what love is not, Paul's going to say, and what love is. And then we'll move on to 1 John 4 uh, for uh, what love should do in my life. So what love is not, what love is. Let's start with what love is not. Paul starts like this in the first verse of chapter 13. He says, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. So right off the bat here, we see the first thing that Paul says is not love, and that's my gifts or my talents, the things that I bring to the table, the things I can do. The exercise of my gifts and talents does not guarantee that you're loving. Just because you have phenomenal gifts, just because you have incredible talents, just because you amaze people with the things you're able to do, that is absolutely no sign of love. That's what Paul's saying here. Now understand, Paul's not saying those things are bad in and of themselves. They can be expressed with love, but the presence of them by themselves in no way indicates the presence of love. You see, Corinth was filled with incredibly successful, extremely gifted, educated, and cultured people from all over the Roman Empire. It was a newer city that had been built just for the fact that it was in such a strategic location for all kinds of import and export, both east and west in the Mediterranean area and north and south. And so people flocked there because they knew it was a place you could make an incredible profit and make a lot of money. It was just a booming, very cultured, very mixed part of the Roman Empire. And Paul had been there for a while, had had some people come to Christianity, end up staying for about 18 months, planting this church, and now he's writing back to them about issues that he was hearing about, and they were sharing about this church. It was a highly gifted church, but an incredibly immature church. Paul doesn't depreciate these gifts. In fact, in verses or chapters 12 and 14, he's talking about the proper use of them. He's encouraging them in them. But what Paul is doing here is saying, do not confuse love with gifts. Love is superior to any exercise of gift that you might have. Don't be enamored with all the gifts that you might see in your church or all the giftedness you have in your church. He was rebuking them for their inability to see how unloving they were acting in spite of the outward show of these gifts. I wonder how Paul would speak to us today if he were here. He might ask you some questions like this, like, do you come to church uh, simply to use your gifts or to experience the exercise of someone else's gifts, but not with the idea of how can I love when I get to church today? 
What's your priority? What do you most often complain about? Is it that you weren't loved enough or that you didn't get a chance to express your love or that someone wasn't as gifted or someone wasn't as talented or the things weren't as polished or weren't as exciting or as entertaining as you might want? Paul would be addressing us as Austinites, I think, very similar to he, the way he does the Corinthians. A very cosmopolitan, a very educated, a very goal-oriented, a very successful community of people from all over the place. I think there is people from California in Corinth as well. I know that was a bad joke, right? But it's just what came into my head. What about your small group? Does your small group emphasize how you're loving one another? Or is it just about getting through the next lesson or the next thing on the agenda? Not that any of those things are bad, but is love prioritized in our gatherings? Paul says if it's not, if it's not priority, then the exercise of these kinds of gifts is worthless. It's like a gong. It's of no value. He goes on in this passage in verse 3 to to talk about another aspect of our gatherings or things that sometimes can be confused as love but are not. He says in verse 3, if I give away all my possessions... And if I give over my body in order to boast, or many translations will say to be burned, like as a martyr, you stand up for truth and you're martyred for it, but do not have love, I gain nothing. That's challenging. He's talking about, in a sense, social justice. If you're willing to give away all your possessions, if you're incredibly generous and even living in poverty, or, or you're so convicted about truth and, and so willing to stand up for what you know is true that you're willing to die for it. But you don't do that with love. You're nothing, he says. See, the exercise of my moral virtues does not guarantee the presence of love. Just because we do these things, it does not guarantee love. Now, love is not less than these things, but it is so much more. You see, so often we can do these things with a selfish motive in mind. We're still self-seeking. And and Paul's not depreciating moral excellence. Oftentimes he commands these kinds of things. Throughout Scripture, Paul, more than anyone, commands us to be generous. He commands us to be self-sacrificing. But what he's showing here is you can do those things outwardly, but have no love inwardly. So love is absolutely supreme in the character of a Christian. Nothing else is more important. See, if Paul were addressing the church today, he might say things like, you, know, you Christians, you try to prove your spirituality by the amount of theological knowledge you can pack into your head, by the ministry talents you have or the successes you've experienced, by the large gifts that you've given or the incredible sacrifices and the way you've given yourself to serve others in the midst of the world or the way you've stood for truth in the midst of persecution. But I tell you, Paul would say, all these things are useless, worthless, and pointless if you don't do them with love, if love is not present. In fact, I think a lot of times, many of us, myself included, hide behind our giftings and our moral virtues 
because of the lack of love that often exists in our hearts. You see, people become really impressed with gifts or with sacrifices you might do or outward actions. And when you find yourself in a group of people and you can express your gift or you can be generous or you can be really servant-hearted and be serving everyone, people start to say, wow, you're, you're so great at that or you really helped me in this area. And we begin to build our identity around what people say about our gifts and we think that that is equal to loving character. But we can do all these things outwardly while at the same time, inwardly we're irritable, we're impatient, we're harsh, we're easily insulted, we're prideful. All these things that Paul says are not loving. That's why a series like this is so important. That's why taking several weeks to step back and look at what love is, is so vital. And I pray that over these next few weeks, all of us will allow these truths that God has given us to evaluate our character. Plan to be poked at a little bit the next few weeks. Maybe a lot. And plan to grow in your love. Exactly what God has called us to. So those are a couple things we see that are not love that Paul starts off with. But then Paul gets into the second half of this passage and he's painting a picture of what love is or the character of love. And he starts in verse 4 by saying, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. And it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. See, most of us hear this passage at weddings, and we get such a sentimental feeling when we, when we hear that. But this is absolutely nothing sentimental about this passage at all. It's actually pure truth about the heart of what love does, not how love feels, what love does and who love is. That's not how Paul's using it at all in this book, if we know the the letter, because he's writing this personal letter to a church in Corinth that had several issues. It was incredibly immature. In fact, every one of those words that we just read, like impatient or patient or kind, every single one of those words is used multiple times in the letter prior to Paul getting to this part of the letter. And every time what Paul is using those words for is to describe how this Corinthian church is not any of these things. It was being divisive, It was prideful. It was taking corners and saying, oh, we follow this person, we follow this person. It was rejoicing in unrighteous behavior within their church. They were accepting and and rejoicing in behaviors that absolutely have nothing to do with love. It was irritable. They were harsh. They were angry. They were all these things that Paul says are love. They were not. That was the church. But Paul is personifying love in this section. See, love doesn't do these things. People do them. The problem is, we don't. 
I mean, let's just do a simple survey. Anyone been impatient in this last week? Yeah. Anyone a little bit irritable? How about envy and you're like your neighbor's home or something like that? You didn't do that on the drive-in or that really sweet car that you pulled up next to you at the, the, the stoplight, right? Have you been a bit self-seeking or irritable? See, those are just the easy things. We, we were just looking, so we're in the, the kind of the market for a new car, like a new used car. We've had ours for a little while, and, and we live in luxury. We got the Honda Accord, you know, working 2013, and then, then we step it up for the, to the CRV. Like, so we just got back from Colorado, the four of us on a trip, you know, in the luxurious, spacious CRV, all of our stuff packed in there, just loving it. We're, and we're, our kids are, our younger kids are starting to drive now, so we're thinking, we need another vehicle. So we went out on Friday and kicked some tires, my wife and I, looking at a few vehicles. We knew we weren't going to buy, but we had an idea of some things. And we've always wanted certain cars that uh, would give us a little bit more space, you know, be a little more rugged, make me feel a little more manly as I'm driving in. Because your manhood is determined by the car you drive. That's, Paul will get to that later in the passage. Actually, that's not true. I've never had a problem driving cars that, that most guys would never drive, fact, even if it is an Accord. I mean, Jesus had an Accord. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> the Bible said the disciples were all in one Accord, so <laughs> I'm just saying it might be the manliest. I, I know that's the horrible, I, don't, I can't believe I went there. That's not in my notes, so that may be worse. But you know I'm going to drop a dad joke in there at some point. Anyway, so we look at these cars, looking awesome. There's one that was sitting in there that, you know, on the showroom, and we kind of glanced at that. Wow, look at this thing. It's incredible. And, and literally, it was the same cost of the very first home that we bought. I was like, yeah, that's not, a, not an option. So we get out of there, and we, you know, we get home. We don't do it. But I did, did need a grill. So I couldn't afford a car, but I thought, dang it, I can buy a grill, though. My grill was shot, so we head to Lowe's then the next day. That's our excitement for the next day. And I find the grill I got, thinking, yeah, they got a couple in the back, so we'll just load it up into the luxurious, huge CRV. But lo and behold, every one of the grills they've already put together. And do you think it's going to fit in the back of our CRV put together? No. So here I am with the Lowe's guy pulling this thing apart outside of Lowe's while these guys that are walking out there like chewing on wrenches and carrying sawzalls and they're getting into trucks that like you could put a whole home in the back of the truck and I'm trying to pull apart a grill and get it into the CRV so I can get it home. Only to put it in the living room and try to put the thing back together when it's been pulled apart improperly. I was irritable. I was a little ticked off. I was a little envious of guys that have big trucks that can just throw this stuff. And I'm thinking, guess what I'm preaching on tomorrow? (laughs) This is how elusive this stuff is. Love is not a thing. It's a person. It's someone that exhibits this. You see, who loves like this? Who anyone we know loves like this? If you see this passage as a, simply a guide for your behavior, you're never going to live up to it. You're never going to achieve it. You have to get to a point where you see this love as something that was done for you by someone. 
that your sinfulness, your selfishness, your pride and irritability, your hopelessness and failure to endure requires this kind of love to change you. You don't just muster up this kind of love. This is not a love that the world knows anything about, nor do we until we meet the right person. So here's, here's what I'm going to use as a working definition for love. Love is the divine, other-centered, holy affection which only comes from God. It's divine because that's its source. We're going to see that. It's other-centered. It's not this self-love that our culture loves to talk about. Man, man no one loves you more than yourself. I'm just telling you that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say to love yourself. It says love your neighbor as yourself. You know why? Because you love yourself so stinking much. He's just saying, if you just use a little bit of that on your neighbor, man, this world would be a whole lot better. I'm not saying we don't you have bad thoughts about yourself, but even your bad thoughts, all those things, are you thinking you're so right that you're rejecting what God is saying about you? or even what others. We do not have a problem with self-love. We have a problem with being in the presence of someone who loves like this to change us no matter where we're at, where his love is the only thing or the first and most prior thing that, that we think about, and that changes us. Let's look at 1 John to, to see this last little principle played out a little bit. First John is John writing to believers in the early church. I know the, the, these authors are really creative. There's John, the Gospel of John, and he wrote another letter, so we'll call it First John, and there's Second John, and there's Third John. It's the same guy, just each of his letters. But he's writing this letter because there was lots of struggles in the early church with false teachers and, and how they were uh, portraying God improperly, and it was causing these early Christians to wonder, am I really saved? How do I know if I'm saved? And, and John starts telling them, hey, the sign, the greatest sign of you being in Christ is your love. And he says this in verse 7 of chapter 4. He says, dear friends, let us love one another. Why? Because love, say that with me, is from God. Is that not up there? Yes, it is. Love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now he's going to give us how it came about and what it is. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's how God revealed love to this world. See, love is not just an emotion, it's not just an action, it's just not a feeling, it's a person. God revealed love to this world by sending his son that we might live in him. And then he defines it again. Love consists of this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Then he ends with these last two verses in that, in, of that chapter. He says, if anyone says, I love God, 
and yet hates his brother or sister, meaning his Christian brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this commandment from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Love is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. God reveals his love through his son so we might live through him, period. Jesus is the only earthly example and epitome of this kind of love. And the Bible tells us about this kind of love. It's so different. It's so counter-cultural and counter-our nature because Jesus' love is a downwardly mobile love. It's not a love that's climbing some ladder to make life better for itself here. That's very self-serving. That's our Western view. And we use God to bless us and get us up to the platform that we think we deserve. That's not what Jesus did at all. He started in the highest platform, Philippians 2 tells us, and he humbled himself. He didn't cling to his own deity or the, the desires or the glories that he deserved. And instead he humbled himself and he took on human flesh And died. And it doesn't just say he died peacefully in a hospital bed or in, and surrounded by his loving family and he just wistfully went off if they were singing hymns together. Wouldn't we all like to die that way? That's not how Jesus died. He went to the absolute lowest point to die for you and me. Death on a cross, the most horrific and cruel form of death the Roman society knew at that time publicly shamed by everyone to scream to you and me what love looks like. Something so foreign to this world that it had to be made much of for us to get the picture. That is love. That's the picture of love. God defines it. We cannot love unless we've been born of God and know God. No person is going to do that kind of thing for anyone else unless they have been totally changed and transformed by the love of God. In fact, it's hard for us as Christians who have the Spirit and have the ability to love to not still quench the Spirit and be self-serving ourselves. It's why we constantly have to come back to these truths. This love is not a love that frees us to do whatever we want. It binds us to honor and obey the commands that Jesus has given us. Because he says when we're free, it's not that we're free in an American way. We're free to do whatever we want. We're free from the effects of sin, from the domination of sin, from the damage of sin. And we're free to live righteously now, the Bible says. Meaning we're bound to truth. We're bound to what is true. And we're able to do that because apart from Christ, we would never do that. We would always be selfish apart from him. But Jesus came to do this, to show us that he is love. This passage says, it's one of those famous verses, God is love. God is the source of love. It's his character. 
This isn't a statement defining who God is. It, he's so much more than that. However, it's essentially saying that all love comes from him. He is the source of all love. You all have heard of, of Franklin's Barbecue, right? Right, that's one of Austin's famous, like, always winning awards. Like, people say Franklin's has the best barbecue in, in the world or in Austin. In fact, some people would say Franklin's is barbecue. You just see what I did there? That doesn't mean, like, they are barbecue. It just means they're the source of authentic, they're the only source of true barbecue. Anything other than their barbecue is what that person is saying is counterfeit. It's not the same. That's what John is saying here about God. There is no love in this world in and of itself. God is love. Any other kind of love is a counterfeit. He is the source of it. See, if you're angry or spiteful or impatient or irritable, arrogant, self-centered, you've forgotten the cross. You've forgotten the love of Jesus Christ. You've forgotten that your unloving character required that loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. Every time we act in an unloving way, it's not because we didn't muster up the love in ourselves, it's because we forgot about the love that's been demonstrated towards us. And we've lost sight of the joy in the infinite riches that await us in heaven. You, you ever seen a, a person that's got like tons of money? You always have one friend that's got a bunch, but is so greedy with it, won't give it away. That's one of the most unbecoming traits at all. Someone that has a whole bunch of something and won't give any of it to anyone else. But that's us as Christians. We have infinite riches and joy and glory in heaven, and yet we can be some of the most stingy lovers we're prideful, we're arrogant, and we're, we're thinking, people are going to take this stuff from me. You're right, they're going to take it from you. That's God's given opportunity to show a love that this world does not know. It's the love that Jesus demonstrated for you and I. Some of you might feel victimized or bitter, and you're on that side. You have a list of all the wrongs done against you, and you're a bit emotionally needed, and you've forgotten the cross. It's the same thing. Why else would you need to prove your worth or validate yourself with people? If you're in Christ, you have everything you could ever possibly imagine for all of eternity. The Son of God himself died to redeem you. The most valuable and loving person in the universe loves you. Why does anyone else's opinion carry so much weight when you know you have that? You need no other validation. You don't need other justification to be loved or to love others. Seeking other validation is negating the love of God for you. You see, no one was more unjustly victimized than Jesus. It was never his excuse for not loving the world. Instead, it was his platform to show how he loves like no one else. So 
So what does this look like for us as a church? What does this look like for you in your life? How are we to respond to this love? Or what might it look like when we receive this kind of love? Because let's be true, most of us have a, a people in our lives that have not demonstrated this kind of love. Even those closest to us. Sometimes those closest to us are the ones that hurt us the most, not because it's their goal to hurt us, but because they're the, they're the most valuable to us. But we put so much weight on being loved by someone or something in this world that cannot love you the way Jesus loved you. And as long as that's priority in your life, you will always be prideful, you'll always be irritable, you'll always be selfish or self-centered, trying to find something that no person in this world can possibly give you. Because true love is born from God. And maybe you're here today and you've never experienced that love. Maybe you're carrying all kinds of unforgiveness and bitterness and hurt towards people that have been incredibly damaging and hurtful towards you. But let me encourage you, fixing that with them or trying to get them to see you differently is something you have no control over. And it'll never fix it anyways. I'm not saying you don't try to reconcile. I'm just saying that reconciliation is not your problem. And until you let that go and lean into the love that only God can give you through Jesus Christ, you won't be able to properly reconcile or get over that with someone else anyway. Jesus is that one person that was infinitely patient. He on that cross did not get embittered. He did not revile. He did not cuss and swear and tell all those sinners out there, you got yours coming. Justice is on the way. This is horrible. We got to pass a new law to make things better for me. This shouldn't have happened. That's not what he did. Because he knew what awaited him. He knew you could take everything you wanted from him in this world and it did not touch what awaited him the moment he stepped back into his father's presence. That's why he could say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Would you not want to have the love and the power and the strength to respond to injustices in your life like that? Would that not free you to live and love in a way that nothing in this world could ever touch? That's what we're talking about when we talk about love. Here's some practical ways that maybe we can put this into work over the next several weeks. I want to encourage you to take these two passages, 1 Corinthians 13 and 1 John 4, and let them just ruminate and meditate in your heart over these next several weeks. But don't get hung up on, how do I muster up this love? Get hung up on, who demonstrated this love in my life? Get hung up on Jesus. See him in it. And let him touch those parts of your heart that you're struggling to love 
the way he's empowered you to love. So let's start with our family. Some of us, uh, we just, just need to start with like our spouse, right? Let's just look ne- next to you if your spouse is there and say, I, I want to love you better. Go ahead and say it. Come on. I know that's challenging. But only Jesus can help me love you better. And maybe, maybe they don't need to spend more time with you. They need to spend a little more time with Jesus to do that. And maybe it's our kids. We need to love them rather than living through them and putting an infinite amount of pressure on them to excel more and do more and be more excellent. Maybe we have to teach them about the school of love and just slow down a little bit and just hang out with them and and show them a love that they'll never see in their school systems. They'll never see on their sports teams, their travel teams, on all the things that we think are so important. And it's not that those are bad. You show them love and then let them go out to those areas properly and show it to those kids that are out there as well. Maybe it's our parents. Some of us are in a season where it is requiring so much of us to love our parents. It's incredibly sacrificial. And that's okay, because that's the love of Christ. Maybe it's our groups. Many of us are in small groups, and we're great at exercising our gifts and, and everyone doing their little thing, but what would it look like to prioritize love in your group gatherings a little bit? You see, many gatherings can simply showcase one or a few people's gifts, but it's not everyone getting to exercise love. It's not an either or, but, but love needs to be a priority. See, our, our main gathering like this has a focus, obviously, on teaching and worship. It can be a little bit more gift-centered like that. But if we're doing the same thing, if we're mimicking that in our smaller gatherings, we're missing a huge component of what we're called to be as Christians. And that's to love others. I can think of several examples in groups I've been in or heard about that were huge. I remember a group we were in that there's a, a significant financial need, some medical needs that were in this group, and several of the people in the group got together with that person and had breakfast with them and said, hey, we heard about this. We love you. We want to step in and help. One of the best group meetings you can have is when you demonstrate love. I think of another one. Someone going through a significant health crisis. Same thing. Several members got together, just grabbed him, went and just loved and encouraged him and prayed for him and said, we are here with you through this journey. Man, I can't tell you a whole lot of other things I've learned from groups. I can't tell you what happened on a particular date. I remember those groups. I know of groups with guys, and some of you are here, where we spent several weeks listening to each other's stories, their life story, and then ended by praying over that guy for several minutes, just praying encouragement, speaking into his life. And those were some of the most powerful engagements we've had in small groups. It doesn't take much creativity. It could be a meal. I've seen our groups circle around families that needed meals and bring them meals for weeks while they were going through a certain situation. Church, that is love. Don't let that fall out from your groups. Find ways to love. How about worship? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going there. 
How about seeing worship as an opportunity to love? How about in a church that has all different perspectives, all different preferences, all different styles of music and instruments and, and environment? How about seeing that as, as less of an opportunity to divide and more of an opportunity to say, wow, this is tough. We're all so different. What does love look like in this setting? Churches all over the world are dividing over this topic. And it screams to the world, they don't know how to love one another. What if instead of coming and wondering, I wonder what worship is going to look like today, your question was, how do I need to love someone today when we gather as a church? What would it look like if I set aside time and came here more concerned about how I can love and serve other people than I am about the expression of people's gifts in our corporate gathering. How might that change our church? And then there's the world that we step out into. See, we're going to soon head into what might be one of the most divided and contentious political seasons that we've ever witnessed. This is a golden opportunity for us as Christians. See, we just have to reframe it. This is a God-given, God-ordained, sovereignly allowed event to happen so that his love can be on display in you and me. I, I, I may be going out on a limb here, but, but how do you think Jesus felt about the political situation of his day and the political leaders of his day? You, you know, Pontius Pilate and Herod, they kind of bounced him back and forth, beat him up a little bit. We're trying to figure out how do we calm the people? How do we get rid of this guy? All right, we'll just crucify him. What do you think his views of the politics of his day were? Do you think he was trying to get another person in an office so that he wouldn't have to do what he had to do? You see, God sent his son at just the right time to accomplish the very thing he wanted to accomplish, the most dramatic and incredible display of love this world had ever known. And instead of trying to change the political scene, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That very well be, may be the most important phrase you utter during this political season. In fact, maybe start practicing it right now. Father, forgive them, for they really don't know what they're doing. Love is a person. It's not a principle. It's not an emotion. It's not a battlefield. Just had to slip that one back in there. It's a person. And as we navigate the rest of this series and more, look more closely at how love influences our Christian character, do not lose sight of the infinite, sacrificial, unconditional love of Jesus Christ. See him in all his glory, clothed in human flesh, coming to this earth. Hear, hear him in all his agony, 
as he walked to the cross for your sins and for mine. And taste all the goodness and the delights and the joys and glories that await all who have placed their faith and trust in him. You have infinite riches in him. You have no lack of ability to love the way he loved. Imagine a church that really learned to love so deeply that its community came to recognize them for just that trait. Let's pray. Father, this is hard for us to hear. I'm not going to lie. I've struggled with this passage all week. I recognize I'm not even qualified to speak on this topic. And thank you, Jesus. I don't have to use my life as the example or the epitome of love. Thank you that 27 years ago, showed me what the best my life was. And love me in a way that I'll never fully comprehend this side of heaven. But Lord, I'm so thankful it has changed the whole direction of my life. And Lord, I know you're doing that same thing with people in this church, in our city, throughout the world. There are testimonies of how your love has changed the most hardened criminal. In fact, we're reading from one. Paul was that man. What else can, can explain that? So Lord, we pray that that same love would penetrate this church. Lord, that we would lean more into you and see the infinite depth of your love, how you describe it, not be overwhelmed by the world's definitions and all the things that it bombards us with, Lord. Help us see it in you. And Lord, would you change us as a church as we go on this journey? We love you, we praise you, and it's in your precious name Jesus, we pray. Amen.